and welcome to the SAMOPS Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military, from all branches of service, and various specialties. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Joshua Hauser with us. Dr. Dr. Hauser is a major in the United States Army as well as an anesthesiologist and associate program director for Brook Army Medical Center's anesthesia residency. I was able to connect with him through the Facebook page Military GME Anesthesia and excited to hear about Army Anesthesia, Fancy's Anesthesiology Residency, and Dr. Hauser's personal experiences and insights as an Army officer and physician. That being said, welcome Dr. Hauser. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we greatly appreciate you uh, coming on, especially as this is we're right into that time, at least for the class of 2021, is uh, looking for the residency program. So this is going to be a, a highlight for our podcast, to say the least. Sure. Uh, I guess we could get started with just the basics. Uh, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, medical school you attended, residency, and things like that. Sure. So I grew up uh, in a couple of different places. Um, I was born in Utah. My parents were still in college, and then Southern California. And then ended up in upstate New York, uh, just outside of Syracuse. That's kind of where, our, uh, if I tell people where I grew up, that's where I grew up. Uh, I went to uh, undergrad at Brigham Young University. I took a break to do my two-year Mormon mission and then finished up. And then I did a master's in public health at the University of Albany and then University of Buffalo for medical school. Uh, and then after that, uh, I matched Army anesthesia and did my intern year at William Beaumont Army Medical Center in El Paso at Fort Bliss, uh, and then my anesthesia residency in San Antonio at BAMC, and I stayed on there as staff. Uh, I have, my wife and I were married while we were still at college. I have five kids now. Um, didn't necessarily intend to have such a big family, but we've been blessed and we're happy with what we got. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, as far as a quick background, that's about it. That's great. Um, you want to tell us why you chose the Army in particular? Uh, well, so when I was getting ready for medical school, um, well, I guess we'll go back a little bit. So serving in the military was something that had always been something I wanted to do. Um, but coming out of high school and getting into college, like it just the opportunity didn't seem like it was the right one until I finally settled on uh, on medical school and then listening to the recruiters that could come and talk to our pre-med classes uh, that was like, hey, I think this is the way I'm going to do it. Uh, in high school, you know, I had dreams to be a fighter pilot or something like that, and that just, that was not going to happen. So, uh, so, yeah, so this was my way in. Uh, I talked to the Navy, and I talked to the Air Force, and I, well, I tried to talk to the Air Force. They never called me back. Uh, and I talked to the Army, and then looking at... Um, the path to residency was a big deal for me. Um, the recruiters for the Navy, they, um, no offense, the ones that I talked to seemed to contradict a little bit what I had heard as far as uh, coming out of medical school and doing your intern year. Just about everybody that does the Navy goes and does some sea time or gets embedded with some unit somewhere. Uh, and I was looking for the a better possibility of going from medical school right into training and it doesn't happen for everybody there's not enough spots but uh, but the army seemed like a a good way to do that and they treated me good they made me feel like I was part of the team right away uh, and that's why I picked the army and then I guess the the follow-on question to that is uh, why anesthesiology in particular this one's a good question and I've 
talked to a lot of folks about it. The so my dad's an anesthesiologist, and so I grew up seeing that. I texted him the other day when I was um, about to go on bypass with a patient because I remember vividly when I was 14 or 15, he took me to work, and the first time I saw open heart surgery, I was like, oh my gosh, this is cool. Um, <laughs> and then I went through kind of a phase of. Like I said, maybe I'll be a fighter pilot, maybe I'll go to the Air Force Academy, maybe I'll be work for the CIA, maybe I'll be something a little bit more, come out of college and get a job right away, like accounting, and then I was like, no, medicine's what I want to do, so I'm going to do it. So I went into medical school, um, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Uh, I kind of pushed anesthesia to the background a little bit because I had this fear of not measuring up uh, as far as you know following my dad's footsteps. Uh, but when it came around to doing my two-week sub-eye at Buffalo, I was like, well, this is really fun because I liked, I liked my surgery rotations. I really enjoyed it. I liked working with my hands. Uh, I liked the pharmacology and the medications on the medicine wards, but I hated rounding. Um, and the outpatient stuff really, it was not going to be for me. So finding that anesthesia was a mix of being able to be in the OR, being able to do stuff with my hands, being able to see physiologic changes minute to minute, um, second to second sometimes, like that was very, very cool to me. Um, and then just as you get into anesthesia and you see the broad range of anesthesiologists and what we can do from pain management to cardiac to peds to OB, uh, you get to take care of folks in little snippets of their life, right, like a few minutes, a few hours at a time. Um, but during that time, you can make a big impact, whether it's uh, trying to calm someone, assuage their fears prior to a big procedure or taking away a, a woman's pain before labor or during labor uh, to uh, to rescuing patients during a code uh, or a major trauma activation. It's it it really just it fit me, fit my personality and I love what I do. So within that, not that we want to scare anybody away from the specialty per se, but are there any drawbacks or things that you don't particularly like about the specialty? Sure. I think that there's that for every specialty. For anesthesia, uh, there are some days where your day is pretty mundane. And the more crazy days I've had and scary things happen, you do come to appreciate those days where you're in there and you're doing some routine stuff and you're listening to the beeps. Uh, and you can really work on honing your craft and tailoring your wake-ups, tailoring your post-op plans, like really becoming the, an excellent anesthesiologist. Absolutely. That actually is a perfect segue to my next question because uh, while I, do, I can't speak for the, the rest of my peers, uh, a lot of why I chose to go back into the military is because I'm extremely interested in operational medicine, and that's something very unique to the military, whereas you know, you get paid to go and do these really great things and go to different countries and do humanitarian missions or um, you can do war fighting missions and things like that. Whereas in the civilian sector, it's not that you can't do those things, but you're hard pressed to find people that can pay you a salary to do it. So That's I was true. very much interested in the elaboration on what kind of operational uh, billets exist for army anesthesiologists. Uh, sure. So, the so as a medical student, I went to Honduras for two weeks uh, on a we call them med reads, so they're basically just humanitarian missions. Uh, we usually, up until COVID happened, we were sending two residents on two to four missions a year. 
the most recent ones have been Honduras, the Dominican Republic, Panama. Uh, one of my, she was one year, two years behind me in residency. She went to, uh, to one in Ghana two years ago. And so uh, there's absolutely humanitarian uh, opportunities, uh, even in residency, which was pretty awesome. Uh, and then uh, in the deployed setting, if you are looking to be operational, there are those opportunities. You will find that most anesthesiologists prefer to not pursue the operational route, to not pursue the administrative route, because we are clinicians, and most of us like to keep our clinical skills uh, uh, at a high level. Um, but that doesn't mean that those opportunities aren't there. So, um, Dr. R chair just sent an email from the commanding general where they're looking for a 60 anything. So November, Fox, well, physician. So Bravo, Juliet, to fill a billet with a public affairs unit in the Horn of Africa. And so people, if they wanted, would be able to volunteer for that. If you want to volunteer to deploy, you just get in your consultant's ear um, early during residency and be like, hey, I want to set myself up. I want to, sorry guys, I want to um, I want to deploy when the time's right for me, and sometimes there's no choice. So the Air Force anesthesiologists, they are deploying at a high tempo, uh, a very high tempo uh, compared to the Army. Uh, the Navy, I'm not quite sure. We don't have as much interaction with them, um, but Air Force anesthesia is deploying a lot. Most folks are deploying every two years uh, pretty regularly. Uh, for the Army, right now, as it stands, I get out in 2021. And I've volunteered for two deployments, and they didn't need me, so I don't know that I'll have the opportunity. Uh, but one of my classmates is in uh, is in a deployed environment right now, uh, and so um, it's definitely there. We had uh, Dr. One of our a colonel who retired two years ago. Uh, he did a family practice residency, and then went and did uh, anesthesia afterwards. Uh, and he took the view that you're only army once. And so he was like, if you want to do jump school, go to jump school. If you want to go to ranger school, go to ranger school. If you want to be a division surgeon or something like that, go for it. So um, schools of thought are different, but there are opportunities for everybody. Uh, basically, that wants, if you want to stay more clinical, it's easy. If you want to do operational stuff and go do some neat things, that's there too. That's actually great to hear, um, specifically because I, was, I personally have an interest in resuscitation teams and things uh -huh. like that. It's kind of interesting to hear that those things exist. Because everything I've read for the forward resuscitation teams and stuff like that has been CRNAs, which was making me kind of sad when I was looking at that information. Yeah, I mean, so right now they have their, um, they have, they staff the FSTs and stuff like that. Now that the caches have gone away, uh, our consultant is actively engaged with the CRNA consultant in becoming more involved with the anesthesiologists manning the field hospitals and pushing out to those FSTs and those programs um, to be seen like what that looks like. But the way Big Army allocates resources is all the place on deployment tempo. And so when they look at the numbers, uh, when we were at the selection board two years ago and they took a spot away from Army Anesthesia, we asked General Clark why and Colonel Soderdahl was there and they said that it really was because when they look at the ratio of anesthesiologists that are in garrison to the deployed setting, our ratio was like 8 to 1 or 9 to 1 or something versus general surgery, orthopedic surgery were like 2 to 1, 3 to 1, so very high operational tempo. 
And so when the bean counters look for spots that are AOCs that are fat, then they're like, oh, well, there's a lot of anesthesiologists sitting at home doing the, you know, the at-home dependent um, medical readiness mission, but not as many deployed. So we're trying to change that. And so I think in the next year or two, we're going to see uh, more anesthesio Army anesthesiologists every year going out. Uh, and the Air Force anesthesia, they're going like crazy. So if you're joining Air Force anesthesia, um, I don't think anything's going to change in the next couple of years. Uh, you're going to deploy. A bridging question to all that is, you did mention, I guess, that the Army is increasing the amount of available residency spot, uh, spots for anesthesia. Is that correct? The Air Force is. The Army is not. So we're staying uh, pat right now. So we currently have five medical student spots every year at BAMC. And then at Walter Reed, there's six to seven. Uh, and then this year, there's one kind of at-large PGY2 and above spot. So either someone that already did a residency or somebody that did their intern year or is an intern right now that didn't match last year can apply for that spot. Okay. Um, and I guess as you being the um, Associate Program Director for the BAMSI Anesthesiology Residency Program, um, what would you want prospective students to know about your program? Uh, we pride ourselves a lot on our academics. Uh, we feel very strongly that you have to have a good background in why we do anesthesia and how we do anesthesia. And then when you go into the OR, that cements that. So we have uh, we have regular morning didactics three to four times a week. Uh, we have journal clubs. We do mock orals every month. We do simulations every month. Um, so we're very academically focused. We are the only level one trauma center in the Department of Defense. Uh, and so as far as being ready to deploy and to be operational, we feel that our our platform at BAMC provides the best operational uh, readiness for that. So much so that the Army has made BAMC now its training platform for the FSTs uh, to come and do two, three weeks of trauma uh, experience at a time to get ready for deployments. Uh, so uh, beyond being a level one trauma center, is there any other unique things that um, your program has that say other military or even civilian anesthesiology programs may not have? As far as civilian, so a lot of civilian residencies, you're at your home institution for the whole three years because we treat an active duty population. And this is the same at uh, Portsmouth for the Navy, Balboa for the Navy, Walter Reed for Navy and Army. Um, we send our residents on away rotations to get some of the experience that we don't have in-house. So we don't do transplant at Bamsey. Uh, we don't do a lot of sick hearts. We don't do a lot of sick kids. We don't do a ton of high-risk OB. So at, at BAMC, we have 10 away rotations over the three years. Three of them are downtown here in San Antonio at the university system. And then uh, doing two months of OB and a month of cardiac. And then we go to Corpus Christi to the Children's Hospital there to do two months of complex peds. And then we go to Houston at Methodist Center at Methodist uh, Hospital, which is part of the Texas Medical Center. It's one of the biggest medical centers in the world uh, with all the hospitals there. And we do a month of cardiac and a month of cardiac ICU. And then we go to Dallas to Baylor, one of the big hospital systems up there, to do a month of vascular uh, and then a month, of, another month of cardiac. And that was a new rotation actually that we started this year. So we've worked really hard to, uh, to provide the best clinical experience we can within our own doors, uh, but also find opportunities to go practice with world-class anesthesiologists and surgeons in the hospital systems to get that experience that we just we don't have under our roof. 
And to speak of kind of that mentorship and supervision, um, what does Bansi's resident to attending ratio look like and how would you illustrate uh, what the supervision of residences looks like at that program? We typically try to keep it one-to-one, -one, so one staff for one resident uh, on any given day. Depending on schedules and how things are built, sometimes we'll drop down to to one resident to two or one staff to two resident rooms. Um, but we feel like there's better teaching that happens with one-to-one, -one, uh, a little bit more flexibility as well. But um, but just kind of depends on the needs of the mission. Uh, some months, weeks are lighter than others. Uh, if for when the uh, a lot of the nurse anesthetists get pulled because they're profit or they're mapped to specific units, then we cover down and try to expand the number of rooms that their residentologist teams cover. And so sometimes those weeks are more two-to-one staffing. So it sounds like even even still that ratio is. Um, Personally, I like that ratio. Would you say that's beneficial in terms of mentorship? Is there a lot of mentorship that goes on with these one-to-one -one ratios? Do they see I a lot so. of the same attendings? Yeah, for sure. And so, and people will gravitate to ones that they kind of like and get along with. And so there's that kind of informal mentorship that happens. And over the last five, six years, well, really even when I started seven, eight years ago, they tried to do forced mentorships from the top down, like assign from the staff, pick some residents, go be their mentors, or from the residents, pick some staff, they're going to be your mentors, and that just kind of fizzled. So last year we actually instituted a new program where we have four teams, uh, black, gold, blue, and silver, to kind of boost some camaraderie, have some friendly competitions. And then within those teams, you know, there's five or six staff assigned to each team. Then we kind of pair, triple off, like, hey, you're going to be this group's these two or three guys mentors we want you to to meet with them to go over their study plans we want you to just kind of get to know them take them out um, you know invite them over to your house whatever you feel comfortable doing to kind of um, to build that mentorship program because that was something that people would comment on that we had good relationships with the staff but as far as having specific mentoring opportunities um, they look for it. So we've done everything we can, we think, to, to make that work and to make it better. And so far, this this new program is working pretty good. Yeah, I would think that you don't want to overly force it because otherwise it becomes kind of a disingenuous um, relationship. Right. And so I yeah. think to some extent it needs to be organic. Um, let's see here. So I know you had talked about things like jump school and stuff like that, or you talked about getting a chance to go do humanitarian missions as a resident, which is amazing. Um, are there any interesting electives that residents do get to participate in? I know that the electives kind of come in the uh, PGY uh, three, or excuse me, four CA three year. Um, so that was a little tricky. So all of our away rotations are funded permissive TDY, and we have it takes a long time to develop training agreements with those places. So if you were like, hey, I want to go to, I don't know, stay here. You want to go up to to Temple, Texas, or Colleen, and work at Baylor, Scott & White, you wouldn't be able to do it because we don't have a training agreement with them. And so, but things in the hospital, so we've had guys that wanted to spend a couple weeks doing ECMO, so we've made that into a, you know, they can do that. We have an ENT option as a rotation to go do um, uh, scopes in their clinic and things like that to get better facile with bronchoscopy. Uh, they can do an extra month of pain. They can do an extra month of regional. They can. So there are things inside the building that we can give people extra months of or blocks of. Um, but as far as 
you having this great idea to go to some other hospital system that it's just not possible usually. That's we fair. did send one to Houston to do a rotation at NASA though. So uh, Dr. Carell, who's now at USIS, she's in her first year of staff there. Um, she has aspirations to become an astronaut and wanted to do their uh, Houston's clerkship or yeah, Houston Space Center's clerkship. And so we were able to make that work uh, for her because that was a it was a DoD or government entity, so that was easy. Oh wow, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. In terms of uh, I guess future future aspirations, that's a great segue. Uh, what kind of expectations may recent graduates of your program expect in terms of fellowships? Uh, again, very service specific. So the Air Force is big on using fellowships as a retention tool. Um, so they are usually fairly generous. So training peds, cardiac, uh, pain, regional, um, definitely there. We even, we trained one and he just got here to BAMC uh, from a trauma fellowship. So that's open to. The Army is, has generally been a little bit more of a do your four years and we'll see what happens. It doesn't always work out that way, but um, but they've seen it more as like a carrot to get people to re-up as opposed to have them for six years as a fellowship trained physician. But that's changing now too. So the new consultant and his deputy who's out here are more of the mindset that, hey, if we've got talented people in the pipeline and we know they want to do something, let's get some fellowships. Let's fill them up because then we can go ask the Surgeon General later when we're like, hey, we, you gave us five fellowship spots and we filled them and had 10 applicants in the wings. Can you give us some more? And so they're very um, pro fellowship on the army right now, trying to um, to make that more of a culture thing. That being said, when you come back from your fellowship, you will not always be doing what you trained. So if you go do cardiac and you come back to whatever MTF, you'll might do cardiac three, four, five, six days a month or something. Same with peds. Um, there's just the volume in the military system is not what you would expect working on the outside. So people sometimes go out and they come back and like, well, the Army or Air Force trained me to be a cardiac or a pediatric anesthesiologist and I should be able to do that every day. Well, that would be great, but you're also an Air Force physician and the Air Force needs to do this or the Army needs to do this and so this is the way it's going to be. So just keep that in mind. Anybody that wants to do a fellowship, the, the needs of the Army and the Air Force will almost always come first. And that's just the way it is. Yeah, that's it. That's a theme with the military in general, right? Needs of the yeah. DOD always come before yours. Yep. Um, kind of following within that, uh, first-time board exam pass rates for anesthesi anesthesiology residents in your program, do you know those uh, numbers? Yeah, so near 100%. So my class, we had one that failed the basic, and he passed it on his retake. We had one that was a year ahead of me who failed his orals the first time but passed it the second time. And then we have a recent grad who um, failed the advanced, or not the, yeah, so the advanced, which is the written portion of the oral boards, or the after you graduate boards. Um, uh, so out of the, you know, 14 residents a year that we graduate, um, over the last seven years we've had three total failures, so near 100%. And they've all become board certified after. That's good to hear. Um, actually, I was kind of curious about this. So you said there's a, a basic exam versus an advanced exam. I understand the oral boards, but can, can you explain that to oh, me a little yeah, bit? Oh, yeah, sure. So 
uh, for anesthesia now. So my class, that I graduated in 2017, we were the first one, second class that took the basic exam. So after your CA one year or your PGY two year, you take the first part of your board certification exam. So it's a standardized test. It's just like the boards, but it's all basic anesthesia stuff, which is why they call it the basic exam. Um, and so that, unlike most specialties, you're actually taking a board certification exam as a PGY two. Um, well, soon to be PGY three. Uh, and then the advanced exam is the written part of the the board certification boards for after you graduate, and those are more advanced topics. Uh, you take that within uh, usually three or four weeks after June 30th of your last year. So I think my year it was like July 28th or something like that. Uh, and then the oral boards, now it's called the applied exam, and so there's the, and it's split into two parts. So the first part is the oral boards, so you have two oral exams uh, at the testing center in North Carolina, and then uh, the second part of the day uh, is uh, an OSCE. So there's a seven or eight station OSCE. Part of them are talking stations like um, difficult interpersonal interactions. There's an ethical stem you have to get through. There's a uh, like a quality improvement patient safety uh, station you have to do. And then there's some hands-on things uh, with ultrasound, with TE, with TTE, with vital sign interpretations, things like that. So. Um, so that's that's how the boards for anesthesia are set up. There's actually four components to it. Okay. Yeah. When I when I started getting into medicine, nobody told me that I'd be taking exams the rest of my life. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and then now with the maintenance of certification, like there's question banks I still have to do every quarter. There's other things, um, QI projects. There's simulations. So it's an ongoing thing, forever. Absolutely. So. As far as advice to students who are uh, choosing a specialty, what advice would you give them broadly about specialties and then maybe a little more specific to anesthesiology? Uh, choose what you can be happy doing for your career. So people um, get focused on how the residents are during residency and they forget that residency is only three to seven years depending on what you want to choose. And so take a look at the staff, take a look at their lifestyle. Are they happy doing what they want to do? Is that something that you can see yourself being happy in 10, 15, 20 years? Um, that's really what it came down to me. Uh, don't get hung up on uh, the stigmas of primary care versus surgical subspecialties. There are pay differences, but there are ways to um, to make more money if you're worried about that. Like uh, one of my family practice pre preceptors in medical school, he went and got certified and did a ton of um, colonoscopies and EGDs and so he had two two days a week that were procedure days for him and he did very well so um, there's and money's not everything and that's the other thing hey, again this is what you're gonna do for the rest of your life you got to find something that's gonna make you happy and feel fulfilled and what about specifically anesthesiology uh, students that are choosing to pursue that specialty are there any uh, any advice you would give those individuals uh, I mean so some people think that there's specific personality types or people that are suited for anesthesia, and we honestly have all of them in our residency and and even in our department. So if you enjoy that kind of, I, the vital sign is this, I need to change it, and I can do that in 30 seconds, and, and you get off on that, then I, that could be something. If you If you don't like being in crisis scenarios, responding to codes, responding to traumas, 
being looked at as somebody who can help in, a, in the immediate setting in a moment's notice, um, then maybe it's not for you. It is, for the most part, very just kind of laid back. Things are going the way they're supposed to. Patient's physiology is acting the way it's supposed to. Uh, but there are times where life or death decisions have to be made in milliseconds and seconds, and those matter. So I think it was less of these personality types are suited for anesthesia than there are some personalities that um, that may not be able to handle the, a high-stress, high-stakes environment like that. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Just going through my list of questions because we're getting close to the end as it is. But yeah, sorry. See what others... No, no, today. this has been great. Um, let's see here. Kind of going to more the general uh, military officer uh, questions here. Uh, I think this is an important one for everyone, and I always enjoy hearing from different military physicians and their take on it, but um, how would you recommend uh, medical students developing uh, officership while they're still in school and how they can continue to be strong officers uh, in the military as they advance through their careers? Uh, I think a lot of it, so keep yourself physically fit, so that's a big deal. Um, Internships hard enough, and so if you come into the military and you're behind the curve and you're having trouble passing the PT and height and weight, uh, it just makes your life harder. So that's an easy one to just now get out there, run, work out, lose some weight, uh, be fit. Uh, and then the other officership things, a lot of it is just remembering that as an officer, you have a lot of people that look up to you just because you graduated medical school, you were going to come in as a captain, and that's been bestowed upon you, and you'll have e ones, twos, threes who look up to you like you're something special. And we're not. You know, we're just guys and girls who happen to not to diminish what we did in medical school. But um, I, don't know, I guess I'm having trouble explaining myself. But you gotta you gotta earn that rank after you graduate, if you know what I mean, in the military. And so being presentable, wearing your uniform the right way, uh, somebody asks you to do something, yes sir, no ma'am. Um, and I think something that's good to practice in medical school is if your advisors or your office staff need you to email them something, need you to turn something in, you should be the first one. Like people should never be chasing after you for assignments, for deadlines. Like you should be on top of your game so that when you get in the military, you can model that behavior for enlisted and junior officers. It sounds like, uh, at least to me, it sounds a lot like the, the basics of military bearing. Like you look the part, exactly. play the part, and mm -hmm. uh, everything else will kind of fall into place. Yep. Uh, let's see here. Actually, just a little bit more about yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. Other than your training career, what, what kind of operational, or I guess you hadn't done operational duties at this point, but what other duty stations are... Uh, roles or jobs that you had? Uh, so right out of residency, I took over as the education director So um, and the simulations. Uh, I've handled simulations for the department. Uh, right now I'm our PPE champion for the department, um, interfacing with logistics and the OR and um, supply chains to make sure we have enough PPE in the hospital to run the amount of rooms they want us to run. Um, I've been me, myself, and one of the nurse anesthetists have been point on our PAPR, the positive pressure air purifying respirators, um, to ensure that we have those ready to go and, and there for folks that want to use them when taking care of COVID patients. And so I've had a decent mix of 
I've been plugged into the residency basically forever because I was chief resident and then split right into some leadership roles and then a year out was made associate program director. Um, but I've also been able to help the department uh, in some other smaller ways without being like our chief anesthesiologist or our executive vice chair or stuff like that. So. Okay, and I think the last two questions that I have for you, because I, I like to ask every everybody these, is uh, what advice do you have for students trying to get into a military residency? And more specifically, uh, your residency program, what are the things that you guys look for in a good candidate? Sure. So, um, so some of the, the basics are always going to be there, whether you're coming in for a military residency or you have a uh, you're able to go and apply through ERAS for civilian spots. Uh, board scores matter. It's unfortunate, but until I mean next two years, we'll start seeing folks that have the pass fail on step one, um, but step two will still have a number, and so trying to get at least average. Uh, on those tests and do as best you can. Um, we'll see your dean's letters and so we'll be able to see how many rotations you honored and how many were just passes or whatever. Um, get great letters of recommendation. So find people that you're able to ask, will you write me an excellent letter of recommendation? Not just, hey, can you give me a letter? Like you really need people who are going to sell you and say and think you're the bee's knees. Like this is the greatest medical student I've ever seen in my life. Please take him. And because we see that, and that means a lot, you know, that, that people have that faith in you. Um, and then, remember, in the military, so it, it comes down to an order of merit list, basically. So uh, the Army PGY-1 match is a little bit different than the tri-service match. So we rank our candidates internally uh, for anesthesia for the Army, and Walter Reed ranks theirs. Uh, and then we'll usually call and be like, hey, what did you think of this guy, or how did you rank this guy, because we want to, we really want to try and get people where they want to go. So we don't want to sandbag anybody if we really love somebody, but they really want to go to Walter Reed. Uh, and then that gets fed into the computer at Falls Church, and it spits out the match list. For the Air Force, and then for all of the PGY2 spots and the fellowships, uh, that's the Tri-Service Selection Board. So in November, we'll get packets with everybody's information, and we will go through and evaluate them. You'll have an evaluator from the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, and then that score gets averaged, um, and then that's your order of merit list. And so. Um, there's points that they can award you for step one scores, for step two, for your performance overall in medical school. Uh, and then there's uh, kind of a grab bag zero to five points as far as potential as an officer. And so that a lot of that will come from your letters of recommendation, from your dean's list, from other cool and exciting things you've done. When you rotate with us, like are you a team player? Are you somebody that, we would, that I would want to be a resident with or be staffed with someday? Like that's where that points come in. And then after those scores are set, then you look at um, research. So if you have a handful of PubMed uh, ID publications, that'll give you a bonus point or two. And then if you are prior service, so if you're prior service anything, it'll usually get you a point at the selection board. And if you're prior service medical, it usually gets you two. Uh, and so they take the board president takes those OMLs, and then that's what get, gets presented to the, the Surgeon General at the selection board. Um, when we're deciding who to take and who not to take. So it's just like everything else in the military, there is, it is a match because once that selection board, the OML is set, then we definitely look at where people want to go and try to make people happy because we feel, at least our program here, we feel like if you earn a spot, you deserve the right to be able to get where you want to go. Um, and then, but some of it is just, if you have really low board scores and you kind of skated by 
in medical school and your letters are kind of so-so, there's we can't help you much because there's scoring guidelines to make things fair and objective for everyone. That makes sense. So I guess an important question for uh, osteopathic students in particular is uh, how important is it for osteopathic students to take step one for anesthesiology? Not at all. So don't waste your money if you don't want to do it. Uh, we don't care. The ACGME now looks at the COMLEX and the USMLEs as equivalent exams, and so we feel the same way. Uh, we still have folks that take both. If you're Air Force, definitely take both because um, there's only six active duty spots and uh, the rest are civilian. So you, the other schools will probably, or residency programs will probably care, but we don't. So uh, if you're Army, do what you want. If you're Air Force, I would take both. Navy, uh, they do send some civilians, so uh, I would consider taking both, but talk to your uh, individual service uh, on that one. Okay, thank you, sir. And then the last question, we'll wrap it up from there, is what are some pitfalls we should avoid as physicians and or officers? I think taking yourself too seriously. Uh, I think we have a tendency to think as physicians that we know, not that we know everything, but that we put ourselves a little bit on a pedestal. And I think that when you look around at the nurses and the techs and the medics and some of the stuff that they do downrange and bring back in their experiences or the trainings that they get put through on the military side that civilian nurses and techs never ever see or do. Uh, there's a lot of value added to departments and to care teams because of that. And so I think treating everyone with respect, realizing that everybody comes from different life circumstances and different educational experiences is really important. And so uh, being willing to, to listen and to be a good leader by example, I think that's where it's at. I think that's great advice. So with that, that wraps up our episode with Dr. Hauser today. Thank you so much for your time sharing your experiences with us uh, as future military physicians. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.